After a finale so flawless that Ozymandias couldn't have written it better himself, does HBO's hit series The Watchmen even need a second season? We'll discuss and recap last night's episode on this mini-sode of High Tea with Monsters, Rebel Scum, and Vigilantes, starting now. Welcome to this mini-sode of High Tea with Monsters, Rebel Scum, and Vigilantes. I'm Brett Ashley, your host, and let's get right into last night's mind-blowing finale of The Watchmen on HBO. I had high hopes but low expectations for this finale. It's nothing to do with this show specifically and more to do with cliffhanger series finale, season finales that so many popular shows have come to overutilize, leaving loose ends to be tied up in subsequent seasons. And I think that this was done phenomenally by showrunner Damon Lindelof for The Watchmen because he did not necessarily intend for us to see a second season of this show. Everything we needed to know was wrapped up tidily in a package last night. Everything that was left sort of unanswered in episodes seven and eight had a nice bow put around it for us. And honestly, as much as I have loved the show and I would watch Regina King in this role over and over and over again, I don't think that we need a second season of this show. And I may be in the minority. I haven't read the reviews from last night or listened to any of the um, pop culture podcasts that I follow I mentioned last week that I was really hopeful that we would see some sort of closure involving Looking Glass uh, or Wade's character played by Tim Blake Nelson. I've absolutely loved watching just the breadth of his character. Um, I think it's one of the underrated performances in a very strong show because the characters around him put forth such strong performances. But he is, I think, behind Regina King and obviously Jeremy Irons, one of the best pieces of this show, just brilliantly acted, confronting his PTSD in his vigilante role. He can be quite terrifying, but he's so relatable and flawed as a human person, and I love that aspect of him. You know, he's not really anyone's accomplice, but he's also not the protagonist of the show, and yet confronting his PTSD has become almost as big a part of the story as it has for any of the other sort of original Minutemen and Watchmen that we follow. And we were left very much not knowing what was to become of him after the episode two weeks ago. So I was really glad that he was wrapped up into the finale in such a satisfying way. When we see him, 
in a Rorschach mask, which is ironic because that's sort of the character in the 2009 era film, I think, who his character most resembles. He is next to Agent Lori Blake as she's being sort of held hostage and forced to watch as Senator Keene is transporting Dr. Manhattan into his possession so that he can absorb his power in front of all of these white supremacists in the 7th Cavalry. And we see Wade next to Agent Blake as she's restrained in a chair. Stay cool. Don't look at me. I said don't look at me. What the hell's going on with this? Sit tight. Talk to me, goddammit. As soon as I get a chance, I'll get us out of here. Who's fucking shooting? Mirror guy? It's looking glass. One of the best comedic lines in the show where he's always correcting her is she sort of retains that wit till what she perceives to be the bitter end. And to see the two of them sort of side by side come in, save the day alongside the the brain power as two of the sort of more purely motivated characters in the show. I really loved even the brief interactions between the two of them. I wanted to see more. Um, I also like that when, you know, the moment comes for Agent Blake to nudge uh, Wade or Looking Glass into action. She she clearly wants him to jump in with both feet and save the day. Um, and he's so pragmatic. He's sort of like, and then what? I'm going to get shot too. That has been, again, one of my favorite parts of this series is sort of watching the two of these characters who, you know, they're sort of unremarkable in their superpowers in a way. Uh, anyone could be trained to do the things that they do as an FBI agent, daughter of superheroes, or the sort of market research turned interrogator, PTSD support group running Wade Tillman um, turned into Looking Glass. These roles, they were just so perfectly cast and it could have easily gone in another direction. Hats off to the actors. Unbelievably well done. And I really loved seeing Gene Smart in that role. Very different performance, I guess, if you're going to compare it to Malin Ackerman's performance in the film. Sort of sex symbol status. Gene Smart provides a very steady, confident, charismatic portrayal of this character. So that's how we leave um, Looking Glass and Agent Blake sort of expecting to bring the brilliantly notorious mastermind of Ozymandias to justice for the sins of his past, even though he has helped them with the present. And Let's talk, let's talk about Ozymandias now, because that, obviously, Jeremy Irons, that performance was always going to be spectacular. But in this episode, what he's able to do as an actor, um, the, uh, with his face, with his body language, going from the, is he going to make it on that rocket ship, to oh, maybe he's not, the game warden's going to get him, to oh, yeah, he's going to make it, no, he's not, yeah, he is, and then he's on the ship and sort of in his 
cape of of the good old days is you know kind of corny campy superhero costume headed back to earth where we're not quite sure whose side he's on but lady true um seems to think it's it's going to be hers and she's holding the ace card of you know genetics and power in her hands jeremy irons what he is able to convey from the sort of hopelessness of his situation as a prisoner, losing his mind in this very bizarre, perverse Garden of Eden on Europa that Dr. Manhattan has left, has left him in. And then to go from that to the heroic, you know, I'm getting out of here, I'm, I'm getting on that rocket ship and nobody's going to stop me, to the Joss old nutty professor look on his face as he's boarding a spaceship and has five seconds to get ready to be teleported back to earth almost in a in a han solo and carbonite mechanism sort of frozen in gold which is so fitting for the character um but the complication the relationship with this daughter he didn't have any hand in creating and didn't have a relationship with is the wrench that gets thrown into it because as we see him returning to earth we're not sure in what context is he there as friend to dr manhattan who is actually coming back at the right time to lend an assist is he there to watch his daughter who rescued him seize the moment and conquer the the most mighty and powerful uh, abilities of Dr. Manhattan? Is he going to break with either path and and do something that none of us have predicted? No, I think, you know, we see in, in him and in what, in what he brings to that role just in the space of this one episode, let alone the prior eight. It, it, it's just like watching somebody actually act the part over three decades with the growth and the change and the back and forth in time. Um, And you need an actor of Jeremy Irons caliber to achieve that level of performance. You know, he is in that campy superhero outfit when he arrives back and stumbling around in the street looking bewildered at what he's seeing in the newspaper, which I think is is almost a little bit of fun for those of us who wake up every day uncertain of what world we're stepping out into when um, this particular moment in American democracy being so terrifying. So um, that was a lot of fun to watch and to see. And then, you know, to have him kind of understanding, coming to grips with the evil mastermind behind his bio daughter's plan and what she's capable of, how she cloned her own mother and has been raising her mother as a child. It's a lot to take in, and an actor like Jeremy Irons is able to process that and play with that in a delightful to watch way. So at the end, you're sort of not sure if you're rooting for him having just brilliantly saved the world from itself again, um, but at a cost and hopefully far less than three million person cost this time, um, but escorted away by Agent Blake and again by um, Looking Glass, who's 
been victimized by his trauma that was a result of this man's actions decades prior in Hoboken when three million people died because of a giant squid. You're sort of rooting for him at the same time you realize there's no way that he is going to get off scot-free for what he's done. So, you know, he's an egomaniac, but sort of a, a an old-school egomaniac, a, a, one of the almost like the Minutemen television show version of himself in those stories that we see, American stories that we see um, as commercials constantly playing, you know, almost as a... Um, motif for the show in general. In the background, he almost looks like, resembles um, a caricature of himself in this entire episode. And that's just a joy to watch. So yes, we're glad to see Wade and Agent Blake get some satisfaction in being the ones to turn in sort of the world's most wanted and hated criminal mastermind. And now that we also know the role he played in manipulating democracy for decades, that Robert Redford is still the president. That's all been settled in a nice package. So one would imagine if they were to spend too much of the capital that they've built with this show and go into a season two with the same characters, it would get really tiring to see him kind of always in escape you know, from jail with a horseshoe mode. And I'm glad that, you know, we saw it happen the way it happened. Uh, We were worried for a while he wasn't even going to make it onto the ship. He made it on the ship. He came, he did what he had to do. And now he is going to face whatever justice is in store for him. To talk a little bit about the way that the show has used those squid alien beings, um, which are a little more than just an algorithm and, you know, meteorological manipulation by Ozymandias to convince people that there's still something to be afraid of. He believes that's what keeps the scale balanced for humanity. And I think I think that when you look at the grittier political undercurrent of the show, and that's sort of what I'm going to transition into here, uh, you realize he's wrong. And there is so much more at stake than keeping people afraid. I guess one of the reasons that masks are so important in this show, as we saw uh, from Hooded Justice through Sister Night, through the mask that even Dr. Manhattan is wearing when he meets Angela, is that the bad guys feel more scared of people in a mask. The good guys feel safer in a mask. Bad guys feel scarier in a mask. But taking all of the masks off at the end and sort of showing everyone to be who they are, the end result is sort of self-balancing as opposed to what we see Ozymandias anticipate the the balancing act is, which is fear, a perpetuation of fear. Egomaniacs always seeking more power, more permanency of power, and that's why watching Senator Keene, who I've got to be honest, has never really impressed me in this show. He's sort of just been too much of a slimy car salesman for me to ever have fallen for his act um, from episode one to Lady 
True, who I appreciate um, creativity, the effort in that character, and the acting was superb. It's just they both felt very archetypical to me, and I preferred the depth in the portrayals of the characters like Detective Blake, like uh, Wade Tillman, and certainly in Regina King's Angela Abar, who's who's just what a treasure. And if she doesn't win every award that there is this season, I, I will be bowled over. And there's a lot of strong female acting on television, streaming television right now, obviously, with shows like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Fleabag. Um, so she's going to be up against some tough competition in her category as best actress. But my God, just watching her transformation as a character from somebody who seemed so sure of herself walking into the situation, the first situation we have within the police shooting in episode one, where she says she can smell it like bleach on these white supremacist Rorschach characters, and she's right, and all of her, you know, information about the raid bears out to be correct. She sort of follows her nose about who to trust, who not to trust. When she is with Judd's wife, Jane, the the answer that we see that we think we know in the beginning of this series when she is unknown to us but she's already the same person we have met eight episodes later who we've been reintroduced to who has fallen in love with this blue man from Mars who has thrown everything pragmatic to the wind who will throw herself in front of you know a bomb to save everyone around her she's just such a force and this episode I think one of the hardest things to ask her character to do was to stand aside and do nothing um, instead of being the one to throw a punch she's the one to try to reason with both supervillains. right she's got the seventh cavalry on one one end who she's got to break some fingers um, that was a great scene I thought just for her to take out her anger to try to save the man she loves for her to then have the sensibility to set the gun down and try to explain to this hated 7th Cavalry, to these horrible racists who say horrible things about her to her face and behind her back and have shot her friends and killed people she loves and also ruined, you know, her grandfather's life and changed the course of history. Um, to see all of that and have her just have to sort of step aside and be the diplomat and not be able to shoot her way or punch her way out of a situation was a real challenge for her character and I'm sure for the actress who is so used to throwing everything out there. But in that scene towards the end that really stuck out to me the most and sort of had me calling back to the entire series with the beautiful flashback of the relationship between Angela and Cal and every happy moment. That callback to the scene in the bar where she's asking him, If you went through all this trouble to create the Garden of Eden, then why'd you leave? So I can meet you. Come on. I love you. Oh, we just met. When the fuck did you fall in love with me? I was already in love with you. Before you even saw me? I don't experience the concept of before. 
So, there's no moment. Moment? A moment. When you realize, oh shit, I'm in love. When is the moment that we fall in love? This man who knows everything there is to know about the world, the universe, history, and time, and can sort of manipulate life um, with the touch of a finger. To see him, I just, to see that moment and have the strongest man in the universe and who we perceive to be the strongest woman in the universe, he's trapped naked in this cage, and she's on the outside, unable to get in and help him. And he teleports everybody else away to safety, except for her. And she says, you know, why didn't you send me? And he says, I didn't want to die alone. It's just such a human, poignant thing. It speaks, I think, to the realness of this love that they had, that they worked so hard to protect, um, even though he wasn't really present in that form, in the Cal form, in the full Dr. Manhattan understanding um, and cognizance, just to know that that was a lived experience for him was a really nice way to tie up that loose end, those questions that many of us had about sort of his cognizance of experiencing those moments in time. Will he remember his children? Was he witnessing and retaining information or was he just sort of like a robot version of himself with no memories? That and for Angela to be really struck by that and to go from the world black and white and that's what we see, um, we know there's no gray area in her conversation with her son in the first episode to the acceptance from her that family and love and all of these gray things in between the black and white are the stuff of the earth. So I just was blown away by the power of that scene. And also something in Cal knew that she was going to be able to get herself out of there, you know, probably because I don't know if he could see beyond his own extinction, but he certainly laid enough breadcrumbs for her to find her way out. And, And she got herself to safety with squids that came and tore <laughs> tore through town uh, in their freeze-dried form. I can only imagine what it must smell like in that universe. I have never liked squids, large or small, and side story. When I was a kid, we had to dissect squids in my seventh grade science class, and I will never forget that the smell of that experience on its own but to sort of add insult to injury our um, seventh grade science teacher hi mrs fleming um, made us cook (laughs) cook the tentacles that we had dissected for extra credit and eat them and the smell of them on the bunsen burners is just something i will never forget (laughs) so it was an extra painful part of this show to have these gross squid scenes but you know it was sort of interesting to see lady true you know hold up her arm expecting to be blue and all powerful and seeing there's a, a hole in my hand because damn squids. And I think it's funny also that her last words were motherfucker because the way she has manipulated genetics um, for familial revenge, it was just a a funny, um, kind of a funny, fulfilling, horrifying scene all at once. Felt a little bit 
left lukewarm um, with Red and with Jenny's characters. They sort of just felt kind of like bumbling buddy cop background noise in a few of the episodes. Like they had stronger comedic moments throughout um, in a couple of spaces. But I, you know, other than like eating the lettuce and some of the... um, action sequences in episode one. I don't even really feel like they were that much of a coherent squad. The The relationship between Wade and um, Angela was, was that much more authentic. And even the, the relationship built between Agent Blake and Angela, they're meant to understand that they both knew these things about each other's relationship with Cal. You know, and that's fine. They're supposed to be in the background. You can't have nine heavy hitters on... The ball team, right? And so this was exactly the right amount of um, legit, big acting, beautiful cinematography, gorgeous storytelling, true to the graphic novel, true to the spirit of the characters in the show, told from a, a storytelling perspective that resonates so deeply on the levels of race in the U.S. today. I think the majority of people I know and interact with um, who are white and did not have prior concepts for Black Wall Street or the Tulsa race riots really are diving deeper into Black American history as a result of this show. And for that reason, I I truly hope that HBO makes this free viewing available to everybody in this country, because I think the commentary on race, the um, turning the model on its head so that reparations are a real thing and, and we're getting closer to seeing that done in many places across America um, in some pretty creative ways. And the approach to, I guess, just even seeing all of the um, black families, the, the Abar family, and then also um, the widow of the, not the widow, sorry, the wife of the cop who was shot in the first episode, the black people in Tulsa live in these sort of McMansion developments and the racists are living in these trailer parks and, you know, kind of meth lab looking scary places. I, I think that distorting that view is so healthy and so desperately needed more of that um, from HBO, from every major production house and network where we are normalizing and not even normalizing, but rejecting the normalization of of the purity of whiteness and the power of whiteness. Um, That has been one of the key strengths of this beautiful show. And so, yeah, as much as I love it, I loved everything about every episode of the show. I think it's the strongest show on television right now. I wouldn't want to see them do a second season because I don't think you can top that. And I know they've talked about maybe rotating out some of the Minutemen stories, telling the story from another perspective, introducing new characters, sort of making it a more mature counter to the Marvel Cinematic Universe because this is a DC-owned franchise. I want them to leave it alone. And I'll be honest, because Damon Lindelof was one of the folks behind Lost, um, and I I still have um, very strong feelings about the Lost finale 
being an enormous disappointment for my generation and for all (laughs) who watched it. Um, We can get into that on another show. But I was really grateful that this went well because it could quite easily have not. You know, it wasn't that the bad guys sort of got away and and there's the doors left open for somebody to come creeping back in or the the romance of the show gets to live on happily ever after you know we were we were told by Cal there's this is a tragedy it's coming we have 10 years together and then it's over and we have Angela asking well why would we do that and then you have at his death scene he's experiencing all of the moments simultaneously why and that lovely I guess we we call them easter eggs in sort of the spoiler culture and the people who dive too deep into every uh Star Wars movie and Marvel scene looking for clues for future shows and movies love the easter egg pun and so to have this egg um motif for the relationship between Angela and John Cal Dr. Manhattan is is really neat at the end and I like that they didn't have her you know walk across the pool or fall face first into the pool I liked that that was left sort of open but I don't feel like I need closure to that it doesn't feel like the end of the Sopranos where we're left wondering who's walking in the door um, with a nervous energy this was a sort of okay either she can or she can't she does or she doesn't um but you know she's she sort of doesn't need she doesn't need his powers to be the most powerful woman on earth she doesn't not need his powers i don't want to see her tempted to do the sorts of things that somebody else who would be dr manhattan would do so the last thing I want to touch on here is that song, Anyone Who Knows What Love Is Will Understand, the song that John plays on the jukebox in Vietnam when he sits down with Angela on their first quote-unquote date in the bar. That kept haunting me as it played over and over again. You know how you hear something and you keep thinking, what other show have I seen this in? That show, that song plays in every series run every year of the show Black Mirror in some way, but the first time that we see it in Black Mirror is in the episode 15 Million Merits, um, which is uh, that sort of dystopian earn coins for, you know, brushing your teeth and working out on the elliptical kind of society, um, starring Jessica Brown Finlay, who most people know from Downton Abbey as the character Sybil, and Daniel Kaluuya of Get Out and now in the film Queen and Slim, which you all have to go see. It's amazing. Please see it. Please, please go see that groundbreaking, important, incredibly pertinent um, masterpiece in theaters now. Um, but that song, anyone who knows what love is will understand, was it's it seemed like overly romantic to me in the context of that scene in the bar and now that we know how that relationship ends i i think it made sense in the context and also for the for the i mean because of the lyrics but also because of irma thomas um 
just gorgeous voice, beautiful black singer, um, was was such a cool touch. Um, when you realize at the end why, um, you know why why that was the song that was quote unquote Angela's favorite song, um, sort of a secret between the two of them. So. Would love to hear what you thought about the episode. Thank you so much for listening in. This week is going to be a little bit crazy. We've got, um, we're overdue to recap episode six of The Mandalorian. I'm going to be honest, that was not my favorite episode. In fact, that was my first episode of The Mandalorian that I did not enjoy the experience of watching, mostly because I had so much nervous tension, um, for Baby Yoda <laughs> during that sh- that episode, but um, also I had some beef with the villain characters being a little bit too um, predictable and typecast. And then we have, of course, the most important thing aside from Christmas on the calendar this year for my family, uh, Rise of Skywalker comes out on Thursday. My family's got tickets to see it at 6.30 p.m. Central. Looking to release an episode with predictions the night before, so on the 18th, and then uh, an episode including spoilers after seeing it uh, probably on the afternoon of Friday the 20th. Um, so that concludes our mini-sode of The Watchmen. What a wonderful show. I'm going to re-watch it again and again. Um, I, I, I don't think that it could have been a more perfect nine-episode miniseries. And I am so grateful to HBO and everybody who made it happen. Cannot wait to root for them big in award season. Until next time, pinkies up. Thanks for joining us for high tea with monsters, rebel scum, and vigilantes. Heavy emphasis on the vigilantes this episode. I am Brett Ashley, your host, and I will talk to you soon. Blame me Try